So to kick off the agenda here, we're gonna talk a little bit about who we are and how we think about marketing. Then we're gonna get into some cost reductions through technology. Um, then we're gonna go into the measurability of some marketing activities and their proximity to revenue, which is something that generally people don't talk about. And then we're gonna end up with the KPI scorecard and how to ensure at a high level how marketing is in fact working for the business or not. So who we are uh, can really be summed up in what we believe. So we believe that great measurable marketing is made up of the science of creative and the art of data. Now, this is catchy, but the, the meaning behind this is that creative always has to be done in a very specific way that looks at data to understand the target audience. Um, the art of data side is more about interpretation of data. The problem with marketing generally is that data interpretation skills of marketers aren't great. Um, so when they look at the data of ongoing campaigns and things of that nature, they're not necessarily tying it back in a way that makes sense. Um, and that's kind of how we are different. So to get you in the mindset for today, we're just gonna do a quick overview of where the market has kind of been, specifically with digital marketing over the past uh, two decades or so, but in three slides. So as of today, 88% of consumers pre-research their buys online before making a purchase, and that purchase is online and offline. So what smart marketers have done is that they've taken this knowledge that people are have put their attention on the digital side and have really taken a bite out of brick and mortar. So this is department store sales in the US by billions uh, quarterly, and basically they've been cut in half in the last 18 years. E-commerce really launched in around 2000, 2002, and ever since then it's pretty much been a bloodbath for these guys. Now, year-over-year -year growth in the last 10 years is very strong for online in the mid-teens versus brick and mortar, which is in the low single digits. What this doesn't tell you though is that increases in online sales are actually by product category. So some product categories are increasing 50% year over year or even 100% year over year, while others are at near zero. And what usually, and this usually comes in waves. So for example, in 2018, uh, personal healthcare products increased online by about 40%. Uh, versus larger purchases that are more complex, those people are, are, are still using brick and mortar because it's a level of comfort thing. But as younger people um, start earning more money, they're more comfortable with the internet, the more complex sales will start taking place online more and more. So that's kind of the backdrop to the, our first topic, which is cost reductions through technology. Here is a graph detailing out the biggest opportunity basically that happened in 2010 to 2018 and the two things that are, that are being compared here is time spent in red versus ad spent. So 2010 on the left and then on the right 2018. So in 2010 it's very obvious to see that there's a huge opportunity in advertising online and now you're saying to yourself well you know this is actually from the, the Mary Meeker um, yearly report and they're saying, well, in 2018, we actually achieved equilibrium of ad spend versus time spent on different platforms, like i.e. eyeballs, like time that people are spending looking at things. But it being at equilibrium doesn't mean that it's optimized. And there's a couple of reasons for this. And one example of this is actually TV. So according to data, 
88% of people that are watching TV are actually on a second digital device at the exact same time. So this begs the question, if equilibrium's heavy on TV spend versus time spent on it, does it really make sense if people aren't actually looking at the commercials within TV? And this is under the assumption that they haven't, you know, PVR'd it and they're just not skipping the ads altogether in the first place. So if they're, if they're not PVRing and they're watching it live, well, they're on a second device. Only 12% of people are maybe watching the commercials. And those are the people that aren't getting up to get a drink of water, aren't going to the bathroom, aren't folding their laundry while they watch TV. Um, so where are they if they're not watching TV? Well, they're on different platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Pinterest, Twitter, doing a search. Generally about the thing that they're looking at, it could be anything from they watch TV and they saw a dress, they want to see where they can find that dress. And through targeting these days, these things are just getting better and better. So the important thing here is that through desktop and mobile, targeting is becoming stronger over time and it's becoming stronger over time um, in a stepwise fashion. So technology gets better, there's a plateau. Technology gets better again, there's a plateau over and over and over again. So I'm gonna show you a table that's right after this slide and there, this is why you're gonna see three versions of the internet. So if we look at things like billboards, they can target demographics generally. So you put a billboard on the side of the road somewhere, you know that a certain area of people travel through this road and so you know the demographics, you can target a little bit. Uh, but beyond understanding some of the people that are moving through, you don't have much else. Like you don't know if they're ready to purchase, you don't know if they have interest in what you do, you don't know if they have the psychographics that will make them favor your product. TV radio publications have a better grasp on this. Certain shows attract certain demographics. Um, I put up 60%, it's actually lower than that on average. Um, then you get to internet version 1.0, which is maybe about six to eight years back. Now you can target 100% of your target audience in terms of demographics, but it, and, and pretty good on interest, but you cannot target their psychographics well. Version 2.0 came about three years, four years ago. Uh, now you can target everything perfectly right up to the psychographics of your target audience. And then Internet 3.0 is kind of rolling out right now. The technology is still being built for this and it's mainly AI and machine learning. And you can now target people not only on who they are, their income level, what their interests are, psychographics that support their interests and their demographics, but you can actually start determining behavioral patterns that determine whether or not a person's ready to buy your product or service like in the moment. So you can correlate data together and then the machine can interpret that and when you tell it, when these factors are present, this person's ready to purchase, therefore show them an ad about this specifically right now. So what this does is that if you look at the percentages, when you're looking at a billboard, like what are the odds that somebody drives by your billboard, pulls it over to the side of the road and like immediately calls that number and basically says, sell me this thing now. I'm not saying that they're not effective. They're effective for different reasons. They're effective for the reasons of impulse buying. So if somebody needs to make a decision without doing any research, you know, branding is in those first two channels, billboard, CD, radio publications are great. But if you're trying to get a purchase decision immediately, it's very difficult for it to happen. And really, even in the previous version of the internet, where I would say about 90 to maybe 99% of marketers 
that's what they're currently using, they're basically throwing 85 cents on the dollar in the trash can right now. Where at least they could get 75 cents on the dollar in terms of effect if they move into these new systems. And over time, this will get better. Like places like Amazon, they can predict what you're gonna buy before you actually bought it. So going back to this, as much as it shows equilibrium, it's actually not distributed well. So the predictions that are out there right now is that mobile and desktop spending will anywhere from triple to quadruple in the next five years. So right now, you're spending 25 cents on the dollar for what you're gonna have to pay a dollar for for the exact same thing later in the future. Um, the issue with this that's gonna happen is that if you get onto this too late, absorbing the learning curve when it becomes four times more expensive, you're gonna waste a ton of money trying to launch these initiatives. Um, and ultimately, getting ROI is just gonna be that much tougher. So with that, we're moving on to AI. Thanks, Nick. So still talking about cost reductions here, the biggest opportunity that I wanna leave you with today is AI. If you're not actively leveraging AI by 2020, you're losing market share. And keyword here is actively, because there's a learning curve to this. The time to implement this, it takes, it takes a long time. This opportunity is so great, and let me show you what the market looks like. For the next few years, this is where artificial intelligence is going in terms of new products, uh, revenue driving through new SaaS products in artificial intelligence. Um, this is where, what this is gonna look like in a practical sense is in your companies, you may have five, 10, 15 different tools that are all AI driven. They all have their own algorithm. They all serve different purposes. They may connect and they may not, but individually, what they're gonna do is they're gonna enhance your employees' abilities. So ultimately, we're trying to drive up the value of each, each individual employee. We need less people, and that's gonna take our costs down. But we want to focus on improving the best people in our organizations and really building up that core through technology. A good example of this would be something like if you had, say, 10 marketing employees, um, you know, and they averaged, for easy numbers, like $50,000 a piece. Through AI, like that's coming up and can be implemented, you could cut that number down to, say, three, but instead of paying them $50,000 each, you probably have to pay them 70 to 75 because they're high, more highly skilled because they need to be able to interpret data to make decisions. Yeah, exactly. So but, the, the, but the net saving is, you know, great. Yeah. Now, the, uh, there's a huge opportunity here, um, but the cost that comes with this is also significant in terms of increasing product tools. So you have to be careful with increasing SaaS product costs. This here is a graph looking at uh, SaaS product spending by company going over the next few years. You can see there's a huge increase in what companies are now spending on tools. You may have seen this already when you're looking at um, the budgets of businesses. They're spending way more now on digital tools, and that's eating up a ton of the margin. So the, the challenge here is making sure that you have the right products, that these products are vetted well, and they're not overspending on these tools. It's really important that we look to the marketers and we start to say to them, you need to take your ROI calculation, and you have to include the spending that you're doing on these, these enhanced AI technologies as part of the ROI. And ultimately, if we can, ma if we can manage 
the cost increases while improving, enhancing the skills of our employees, this is a huge opportunity to reduce the overall FTE costs. The highest order is the customer experience. There's this notion of being hu bringing humans and machines together, not versus each other, but together. There's a lot of studies done on how AI technology works. And what's been found is that in almost all cases, when you pair a human with the, with the technology, you get much better results than if you were to just run the technology. I've seen firsthand when you let an AI go on its own, just usually when there's not enough data, it will go down the wrong path and nobody will be there to correct it. You have to have technology that works with the employees because they can provide the context to that AI to make the best decisions possible. And the challenge there that can happen really quickly is that we've actually seen firsthand um, AI applied wrong. And this is where you're getting into places where you hear about an AI spending 20, 30, $40,000 uh, without anybody taking notice. Uh, and that money was basically thrown away in the trash can. Like it had no net effect of any, of any kind. So uh, next topic, uh, measurability of marketing activities and the proximity to revenue. Uh, this is something that we generally don't see a lot of people talk about or, or know. Um, people in marketing know this intuitively, but they don't know it explicitly. And what I mean by that is that they generally understand that they need to do certain things at certain times based on timing of budgets, timing of results. But they're not generally thinking of this like, I know my next two quarters, for example, I'm gonna hit my targets. We know that sales growth targets for next two quarters are fantastic. So I, don't, I can take resources away from the short-term timeline to revenue and put them into longer-term activities. So this is a matrix that we generally use for our clients. This is actually one of our client examples. So this matrix actually moves around where the different tactics are. So when we engage somebody, what we ask them is, what are your targets for the next two, three quarters, depending on the time of the year? What are your goals next year? If you don't have explicit goals, what's your overall percentage growth goals? And what are your three to five year goals? Because depending on what those are, and based on the budget, we need to allocate different activities in a different percentage to, different, to these different tactics. Generally, longer timeline to revenue items are more brand building and can be leveraged throughout the medium and short term. Now, when you're looking at things like short-term timeline to revenue, you're really talking about ads. Because an ad is there while you pay for it, you stop paying for the ad, it immediately disappears and it stops having any sort of effect. So if you're, so if you're getting leads through your ads, that's great, you turn your ads off, you have a 90-day um, sales funnel. After 90 days, your sales are basically gonna stop unless you have an outside sales force. So the medium term things are things that if you turn them off, they'll generally work for a few months on their own and the value of them on the internet will just kind of perpetuate them. Long term value items, like these things can last for years. So if you push on these for two, three years, like, and you're gonna sell your company, say like three years after that, you can actually turn them off and then just leverage those over and over and over again for a couple of years. Um, to build off of this, uh, there's another thing that we use that we won't get too far into because we use the last matrix with this one combined, and this is long-term value versus the total amount of resources required. So there's an interplay here, 
and we are looking at the competition, we're looking at market data in order to determine this matrix and what the budget is to determine the actual tactics inside of here to actually give us a very concrete 12 month or 24 month plan of what needs to be done and when in order to hit targets. So for example, you know that this quarter's fine, next quarter you're gonna start missing targets. Well, you need to start ramping up the, the short interval activities where you know that you can generate leads today and then the next month so that your 90 day sales cycle kicks in and you close those sales in the next quarter. Likewise, if you think that next year you're gonna have trouble because your sales growth needs to be 30, 40, 50% and you have completely eliminated your long-term activities, well, I mean, unless you have an unbelievable scale or you're just relying purely on your sales force, you're not gonna do it through marketing. You're not gonna generate enough interest and leads and or brand equity in the market to try to be able to hit that growth goal next year. So I put together a quick buying example, like say you're looking at a deal, uh, and again, I'm not an M&A person, but I'm gonna slog my way through this as best I can. Um, imagine you have this, you're, you're looking to buy something, and they've completely stopped long-term activity. Usually people are doing this because they're trying to pump EBITDA. So you, know, you cut back on spend, your EBITDA goes up, you're trying to get better multiple, maybe there's some sort of threshold that they're trying to meet, whatever it is. Well, if your plan is to buy this company that has done this, and it's a long-term hold, and you need to actually leverage the brand in of itself, so like the brand has to stand on its own, you're not rolling it up into another brand. Well, if they stop all long-term activity, you actually have to add in cost that is gonna to have to be spent next year because if they've stopped branding activity for a number of years, their sales are not sustainable. So what happens with long-term activities is that they're slow to get going and then they eventually pick up. If you stop them, they pick up and they hit like the top of the bell curve and then they come down. And if people can time this really well for marketing and sales, that means that if you're buying them and they're trying to sell to you and they've stopped these activities, they've basically gotten the maximum value out of these long-term initiatives that they probably stopped a couple of years ago, and you're gonna pay maximum value, and then the next year, it's gonna decline, and the sales are actually gonna go down real fast for the next two, three years. And then people are like, well, we're not doing anything different. The problem is, is that you're not doing anything different in the time horizon that you're looking at. So here's a different example. Imagine you're trying to sell. So this is kind of like a counterbalance to the last one. So you're looking to sell a company in five to seven years to a hold co that's gonna completely roll up your business. So the brand is disposable. And you know this, like the marketing agency world, for example, like there's hold codes, they sometimes retain the brand, but most of the time it sits under a different, bigger brand. So in this case, what I would personally do is that I would do long-term activities heavily that are directly in support of sales. I would, after the two, first two or three years, I would then fully turn those off as much as I can. And then because I can glide on those for two or three years, I would repurpose a portion of that savings into short-term activities, which are gonna increase my sales numbers even more, my top line sales, and I'm gonna then pocket and save the rest in order to increase my EBITDA and hopefully my multiple. So what I'm really trying to say here through these two examples is that a lot of the times when companies get sold, like the marketing structure in terms of budget is not sustainable at all. Um, and I've seen this happen more times than I can count at this point. Um, so just a word of warning there. Uh, gonna get a bit into KPIs here. So how to ensure marketing activities are working? So 
we divided this into metrics and KPIs. So first of all, metrics. Uh, we really, like, depending on if you're using an agency or not, sometimes the best they can do is really show you how many leads have been generated depending on the type of business it is. Um, connecting marketing is generally not the easiest, but it can be done with new technology and it's fairly cost effective today to actually connect all the systems together. Um, more importantly, as we go down this, cost per lead. Um, cost per lead is a thing where it needs to be measured on an initiative basis so that you understand what initiatives are actually generating the, the best leads at the best cost. There's a few other things that go into this, like marketing qualified leads versus sales qualified leads in SaaS companies, but we'll go down that road a little bit later here. Um, incremental sales. Now, if you're, if you're marketing things that, for example, consumer packaged goods, where they're not selling these things online, you have to actually look at sales lift versus last year or versus you know, what that growth rate is. So if you're growing 10% quarter over quarter, you do a specific campaign and you get less than that, well, did the campaign really work? Odds are it probably didn't. Um, here's the important ones for us, and this is when we engage clients, like this is kind of our bread and butter. Uh, customer lifetime value. Uh, outside of SaaS companies, and even some SaaS companies, people don't know what their customer lifetime value is. And I would say that, from my, our experience, less than one in 10 companies actually understand what this is, which is incredibly scary for a number of reasons. Um, a low customer lifetime value can fully negate certain marketing activities. Some marketing activities, if you know that the customer lifetime value is a, is a certain number, you can basically just grab like a quarter of the marketing activities and just throw them out. And some sales activities as well. Because some activities online have very clear benchmarks if the marketer knows what they're doing and then can tell you this tactic, we will never achieve enough. Like our customer acquisition cost is gonna be too high versus the lifetime value, so it just will never work. So customer acquisition cost, again, uh, people tend to know this a bit more, but I would be sad to report to you that maybe that number is like two in 10. People understand what their customer acquisition cost is, and I'm talking overall. Now, if you ask them what their customer acquisition cost is based on an actual campaign, so, hey, we ran three different campaigns, what's the customer acquisition cost of each? They're not gonna know most of the time. Customer acquisition cost actually has to be driven down on a campaign basis and on a channel basis. So what's your customer acquisition cost for field sales? What is it for inside sales? What is it for e-commerce sales, right? All, and then beyond that, we ran three initiatives for each. So of the nine, what's your customer acquisition cost for each? Um, without that, it's very hard to optimize your spending and it's actually impossible because now you're guessing and we go back to the data thing People look at the overall, it's like, well, this doesn't tell the story. There could be something that is $50 to acquire a customer, and there's other activities that are 1,000. So where do we put our next incremental marketing dollar, or where do we cut budget from, right? We can, if that's the case, we could double to triple the sales for the exact same budget just by moving budget around. But generally, these things aren't measured properly. Um, if you're a SaaS company or you invest in SaaS companies, you know this. Um, lifetime value to customer acquisition costs needs to be three to one and you need to pay back your acquisition costs in six months. 
Um, one thing that I always caution people about when they use this is be very careful of time, like time horizon. So there are certain activities that when they're not optimized can show very negatively on this ratio where it goes below three to one. So it's not great. But if those things are optimized, you need to give things like a certain amount of runtime to figure out if they can be optimized because sometimes the things that start off the bumpiest can actually be much greater than this metric. But people throw it out prematurely because they're so driven by numbers. <clears throat> Being driven by numbers isn't bad, it's just the time horizon that you're doing it which. So if you're trying something out for a month and this ratio isn't favorable, don't throw it out yet. If it shows other metrics and KPIs show, are showing favorably, try, try different iterations. Maybe you're not targeting the right people. Maybe you can lower that acquisition cost. Maybe the customer is worth a bit more if you tweak a couple of things. Um, just be careful with the going overboard on this on the short term. Long term, yeah, like this is kind of the be all end all. Uh, and that, with that, we have KPIs. So the first KPI we have here is click-through rate. Uh, we're going to be going through the KPIs um, in, in the view of a funnel, a lead funnel, right? So we're starting at the top of the funnel. With a click-through rate, um, this KPI is even right before the funnel. Somebody hasn't entered your funnel yet. They're clicking through, whether it's an ad, whether it's organic search, uh, they're coming from somewhere and landing on your website or your landing page. So the click-through rate really tells us um, was the content that was delivered to them, whether it was an ad or, or whatever, was it effective in terms of getting them to, to the page? Um, did you deliver what they expected? So this is a really important number because... What's a good click-through rate? Sorry? What's good good click-through rate. I mean, we, we have some examples here, but good click-through rate, I would say, is uh, 10 to 15%. Often, you know, um, I've seen companies driving click-through rates that are one, two percent. It's just, it's just too low. With the targeting available these days, you should be targeting um, more specific, fewer people overall, where you can drive up this click-through rate. Often, this this KPI is a key indicator of your cost of acquisition as well. So it's a really important thing uh, to keep on. And it is industry dependent. Highly. That's right. So depending on the industry and the initiative, uh, click-through rate will change. So you have to look at the benchmarks specific to those initiatives. Total visits. So now they've entered the funnel. They've landed at your website. This is, this is just the baseline. Um, now what we want to do is take the total visits and convert those people, bring them down the funnel, and convert them into a sale. Um, and so that, that process takes some time. But if your total visit numbers on the, on the get-go are not high enough, you're not gonna have any people to work with to bring them down the funnel. So having this as a high, as a high a KPI is really essential. Bounce rate, so bounce rate indicates when somebody lands somewhere, if, they, if they've come to your website and they immediately leave again, that's a bounce. So the bounce rate indicates for us are the, the content that they're finding, is it what they expected to find? Is it connecting with them? Is it successful? So if you find that you've got a very high bounce rate, which means people are coming and leaving right away, uh, that means that whatever you're presenting them with, perhaps you brought the wrong person to the landing page, to the website, perhaps the content that you've provided them with is not resonating with them. 
So bounce rate really is an indicator that shows something is either working or it's not. And then you need to dig deeper to find out what's happening there. Funnel conversion rate. This is probably the most important one here because it allows us to, uh, to identify problems and create solutions for those problems. Bringing someone down the funnel, you have multiple stages of it. So the important thing is having these ratios of moving from one stage of the funnel to the next stage of the funnel, you can then identify where there might be a blockage in the funnel. Where is there some sort of disconnect where, you know, okay, we're getting 100,000 people to the website, but we're not converting into sales. So, you know, you need to see where that funnel's breaking down. Is it at the top or is it middle or bottom? And then with these ratios, you can be able, you can basically say, well, we see people are coming through the funnel, through the first two stages, but they're not converting at the end. So that's how we identify there's a problem here. Maybe it's the shipping cost. You know, maybe it's something else. Maybe the, the price of the, whatever, whatever they're trying to buy. Maybe they're going and doing research and purchasing somewhere else. So this is really important for helping us identify where the problems are to fix. And when you fix those problems, ultimately that's how you drive up your CAC and your LTV. Um, that's all we've got for you today. Yeah. Uh, Nick, did you have any final words? Um, I think the important thing to remember with marketing is that, you know, if a marketer gave you a, an excuse 10 years ago of, hey, like, I don't know what the effect of this thing is, 10 years ago, they were probably right. They couldn't really trace it back to revenue ROI leads on a case-by-case on a -case basis. With the technology that's available today, that's not true anymore, right? Like, I mean, maybe even for some industries three to four years ago, they couldn't actually do attribution of revenue. Today, you can. The question is whether your systems internally inside of a business are there or not. Um, the thing that's actually happening now is that the cost to do that is lowering incredibly fast. You now have systems in place where, you know, through APIs that people have built um, and a little bit of admin work, not a lot, you can get down to uh, tracking somebody from the first time they interacted with you all the way to the sale and then actually say, like, what was the cost of acquiring this specific customer? You, you can actually do that math today. So if somebody says, well, we don't know, well, I mean, unless they're selling potato chips, you know, out of Savon, like, you know, especially if it's anything to do in professional sales where you can track everything. If it's SaaS, it's the easiest thing. E-commerce, same thing. Like, you can track things down to the penny these days. So I think this is, like, something that needs to really change in the marketing industry. So without any questions. Uh, how big of a threat do you think the... Uh Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because to some degree, if you fully disable like anonymity to the maximum, what ends up happening is that these platforms no longer become financially viable. But beyond that, you would be surprised at the amount when a lot of the anonymity thing comes in, people are talking about um, un, I'm trying to look for the word here. Um, basically people haven't given permission to use their data. The thing is, is that the amount of data that's out there where people have given explicit permission is unbelievable. 
right? But it's all within the terms and conditions and even in terms of conditions of other things. So for example, on Facebook, if you log on to Facebook, you go onto somebody else's page and you like you know, a random page's post, based on the terms and conditions, you have given that page access to your data because it was in the terms and conditions that you signed seven years ago that you'd never read. So anonymity is all well and good, and yeah, like that can be stopped, but there's still people giving large permissions on their data. And so really it's a philosophical question then where you're either saying, do people care enough about giving away their data if they have nothing to hide versus you know, a section of the population that might say, I don't wanna give people my data in any way, shape or form ever. But what percentage of the population is that? Mm -hmm. Right? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? Is it 90%? I think it's on the lower side. It probably is like that 10 to 20, mm -hmm. where people like actually go through the process, opt out, don't sign up for iTunes because they don't want to be tracked. But the number of people that are doing it is very low because people just don't care. We lead busy lives and it's the thing that, you know, is going to track our data is going to save us like an hour a day or like five minutes a day and it's convenient for us. Like we're just going to say yes to the agreement. I think the other thing is that like, we're talking about a change that's across the whole market, right? So everybody's affected by this. So what you might see is certain benchmarks for you know what a good like cost of acquisition is. Like those benchmarks might change, but at the end of the day, um, you know everybody's affected by it. So it, is it going to be detrimental to like a specific company? Sure. It could be in some cases, right? But um, really, like marketers are always going to find a way whether it's changing the tactics or finding a creative way to get around some of these things to track people properly, um, there's definitely solutions to this. So it, it's a challenge, I would say, but it's not something that I would say people should be too afraid of. Yeah, I have a question. Like, say, for an online marketing agency like you, how do you target the client? For ourselves? Yeah. Weirdly enough, we target them uh, mainly through Outbound especially like if we're targeting customers in the United States, we actually target them through Outbound. So we do targeted ads to specific job titles, um, in specific co companies of specific sizes. And then we, after we have advertised to them for a while, so they've seen our brand, we actually start shooting them emails because then they've, they've like recognized us. Yeah, but how do you charge them? Do you charge them like a percentage? Oh, how do we, oh, I thought you said target them. How do we charge them? It, it depends. I mean, like really like, to some degree, the front end of this is a consultation. So generally, we start off with a review engagement to review um, their budgets, to review their targets, to like do a competitor analysis. Or is like back to that matrix that I showed kind of in the middle. You know, what's that optimal mix to hit those targets, and are the targets even possible based on current budgeting? That's kind of where we start, and then we give over a set of recommendations with a budget. If people want to engage us on that, great. If not, they walk away with a review engagement and they can try to implement it internally. Yeah. One of our philosophies is that we think there's too many people out there that are just pitching ideas, and you know, based when you look at the data of the business, there should generally be you know a right answer. Um, and so we don't like to just go in and say, hey, you know, you guys should be on social media because social media is great, right? Um, we want to go in and look at you know, the financials and look at like the data that they have available. And some companies don't have this data available. We have to help them gather it, right? But if the data is available, then we can take that back and we can look at that and make an informed decision on what the path forward is, right? Um, like Nick was saying with like the, you know, the proximity to revenue, uh, we could be recommend recommending 
two very viable tactics, but one tactic is gonna help you generate, you know, meet your targets in the next three to six months, and the other one might help you meet your targets next year, right? So they're both good, but which one do you deploy, right? So it's really- in what percentage of allocation. Exactly, yeah. Do you charge a monthly fee or percentage Generally what we do is that we do a monthly fee, but that's comprised of services. So it's not, it's not a retainer, right? I mean, we do provide services where, for example, some companies may not have you know, a VP of marketing, but they have a marketing manager, and then you know, the, the VP of sales is managing it, but they don't really know marketing that much. Uh, in those cases, we do kind of a retainer because then we are acting sort of like a VP of marketing um, on a part-time basis for them. Uh, but generally, it's output. So it's like, this is the 12, like part of that review engagement. Here's your 12 month plan based on your targets. This is what your budget should look like. We've already talked about budget. This is what it should be allocated on. Do you want to do it? And then you know what is being spent every single month. Uh, I was just curious, where do you get your data sets from? And do you like, use companies like Databricks and things like that? Or? It's a combination. So, so for one, first of all, it's like step one is always internal. So if we, if we engage with a company, we look at their data first as a first sweep. Then we generally meet with people to understand, okay, like let's contextualize this data. Then we look at the benchmarks and then, yeah, we use data services and I mean, a lot of it is out there already. So it's a combination of things. Yeah, and it really depends on the size of the company, right? Because, you know, when we're working with a lot of small and medium-sized businesses, um, and if we're working with a larger business, you know, they have the ability to, they have the budget to afford some of these uh, you know these larger data sets, but with a small company generally something like that is not available to them And we can't offer it to them at that price. So we have to take you know a, a more custom route in that sense uh, Any other questions? Yeah, yeah, the question. you had, within your presentation you had a good breakdown about how marketing translates in revenue over the short, medium and long term um, under example one specifically from like private equity standpoint, let's say you were talking about a company that may be pulling back on its long-term marketing. Um, and so I was wondering if you're going through due diligence and looking at buying a company, what would be some of the top due diligence procedures you guys would recommend to identify if there's been some inflated earnings due to the long-term marketing being cut off, for example? Yeah, I mean, I would actually look at the outputs that they were putting out in the past, like maybe five years from a marketing perspective and just asking the questions like, okay, like what are the branding initiatives? Like, like people call long-term initiatives branding initiatives. They're not always branding initiatives, but they generally are. So it's like, what is, how have you built the brand in the last five years? And they'll give you an answer whether or not that's like a gray zone answer or not. Like that's where it gets a bit tougher to determine. I can tell you this, like if, if you know, you look at a PL and all of a sudden it drops off as a percentage, like they've done something. Right, and it, and it wasn't to like boost their sales for the long term if they're trying to sell. Right, they're trying to optimize everything down, but optimization for the short term, that's where like you can get burned, where it's like you're optimizing your EBITDA today, but you're paying for it tomorrow. So at that point, you have to kind of, you know, I mean, and, that, and we can help with people with that, but um, long term initiatives look a lot like rebranding. It's like, when's the last time they rebranded something? Like if it was 10 years ago, that's maybe questionable. Um, have they been doing things like videos, podcasts, uh, things that basically work, but they work on a very long-term multi-year basis? Because if you do, for example, like we do a vlog, uh, like for ourselves, 
Well, we only do that because we know that the value of that is long-term. Like I can use a video that I shot three, six months ago, I can use it three years from now, again, and I don't have to remake that video, right? So there's certain tactics on a per industry basis that you can actually look at. And again, more, more than happy to even just give you a list after the fact. <laughs> well, that's helpful.